Tonight on the show, you will hear this art dealer say, You can look at all of the figures in the history of art that when they first purchased, most of them were chastised in some way for buying something that was worthless or meaningless to most people, but subsequently became something very significant in the evolution of uh, our cultural history. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, the podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, And welcome back to our corner booth here at the old art dealer bar. Now that the collectors are far out of earshot, galleries are closed, and we've got a chance to take off our blazers and loosen our ties, this is the place where we can grab a couple drinks and shoot the shit about this here racket of ours. You've picked a particularly good night to drop in, because tonight I'm going to be speaking with gallery owner David Fahey owner of the Fahey Klein Gallery in Los Angeles, California. And if you're not hip to how and why David and his gallery is so important to the art world, and for that matter, us art dealers, hang in there. I'll get you up to speed in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you how I was originally introduced to David, or at least his gallery. Back when I was in college, a teacher of mine introduced me to the photography of Joel Peter Whitkin. It was dark and disturbing. It dared you to look at the things in the world we were told never to stare at and see the beauty in them. It was taboo. And for me at the time, being a archetypal or or maybe a cliche, dark brooding art student, it was just my flavor and I needed to see more. And as serendipity often works, a gallery in town was having a show of his work. Of course, that was, and still is, the Faye Klein Gallery on La Brea Boulevard. That was also one of the first gallery openings I ever crashed. And while there, I got to see in person and up close Wiccan's huge black and white prints of his latest work, posed and composed, corpses taken in a Mexican morgue. This gallery, without a doubt, was cool. Fine art photographer Tim Bradley was the teacher who turned me on to Wiccan's art, as well as the gallery that was having the show. And along with turning us on to the art, he also showed us a video at the time. It was an interview shot in a backyard in Pasadena, California with the artist. And ever since then, I have been trying to track this thing down. The interview was fantastic, particularly if you're into Joel Peter Wiccan's art. But that's not really the reason I've been searching for it for all these many years. It's really because of something that happened during the interview. Or at least maybe. At least I thought so. Honestly, it's been several years since I've seen the video. And it was just that one time. And to be quite honest, I'm not even sure if what I'm remembering, at least this part of it, was even in the video itself. It might have been just a a story that Tim Bradley told us about after or before showing us the video. Or maybe I just completely imagined it. Or, well look, I wasn't 100% focused 100% of the time back then, if you understand what I'm getting at. But now, here we are decades later, 
and I'm back at the same old Fahey Klein Gallery at the same place on La Brea Boulevard, and this time I'm invited, and I'm not even stealing wine and cheese. I'm here to interview David Fahey himself for this year podcast. Somewhere along the line, he started to tell me about his early days while he was starting out as an art dealer, working for the now legendary G. Ray Hawkins Gallery. During that time, he had a zine of sorts that he did all on his own, a project not unlike this here podcast. For this journal, he interviewed important photographers of the day. Along with that, he took portraits of them. This, by the way, became a project that he continued on for many years after. And while talking about this, I took notice of a picture on the wall, and it looked really familiar to me. And as I stared at it, I started to whack my finger at it. And as I whacked my finger at it, I said to David, I said, you know, I saw this video from probably the early 80s of uh, Joel Peter Witkin. And then I'm looking at, I knew it, you know, I was looking at your pictures, the portraits, and then I saw him and I said, I know that mask from that interview I saw back then. And then I can't remember if it was part of the video or someone told me a story from when the video was made. No, about- I'll, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, this is, this is now becoming a lore. So that was either Tim Bradley. Yes, it was Tim. Mystery solved. I'm going to see this tape again. Tim Bradley was my neighbor in Pasadena, and he borrowed that tape. And that's, I've been trying to get that tape back for years. <laughs> oh, no. Tim has it, I'm sure. But no, what, what happened was we're doing the interview in the back, backyard of Jack Woody's house, and um, Joel had the mask on, and, and I had a- Okay. It wasn't just a mask. Witkin, the whole time of this interview, has been wearing a large, black, Lone Ranger-style mask. And in the center of the mask, between his two eyes and pointing straight down his nose, was a detailed sculpture of Jesus, the kind you get in one of those Christian supply houses. This is one of the graphic kind, too. Blood, legs limp. You get the picture. I had a pretty damn interesting interview going, and I taped it. And he was really on top of it. And I mm-hmm. thought my questions were cogent and to the point. And then all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. It's Sunday morning, nine o'clock. And uh, we're in this middle-class neighborhood in pa- Pasadena. And we went both went to the front door. We, Joel opened the door and right at the front of the, right at the door was this little black girl. Her, her skin was coal black and she had a white like a prom dress on. She's probably 10. She's in her Sunday best in a pure white and her eyes were rolled back up in her head because she was blind. And her cue when the door opens is to say, Christ died for your sins, you know, you're blah, blah, blah. She was a Jehovah's Witness, okay? And, and launch into her speech to save you, okay? So she couldn't see Joel because she's blind. So the two women and another little girl were behind there and they were sighted, you know, they could see. But he, of course, answered the door with this crucifix. Keep in mind what this family isn't seeing. They're not seeing the pictures by this artist that would fill their nightmares for the rest of their living days. The artist standing before them has photographed sideshow freaks, amputees, hermaphrodites, hermaphrodite amputees, S&M bondage, and on and on and on. Sunday morning, nine o'clock in this little neighborhood. So of course the girl, the beautiful little girl, just went on with her speech and the other, the other three stepped 
three steps back, they thought, we've just arrived at the home of the Antichrist. And we're going to burn in hell right here in this driveway. The little girl's family has now worked their way down the walk, sacrificing their young blind child to the devil. Oh, yeah. And as they left her there, there on her own, she goes on. She goes on unaware that her family has abandoned her. And Joel continues to listen politely. Yeah. The little girl continued to share the good news. She was doing the whole thing. He listened to the whole thing. We bought, each of us bought a watchtower and then they left. And, and I thought to myself, you know, who would think to take their camera and to the door and open it up? First of all, I didn't think he was going to wear the mask. But, and then that same day, I took pictures of him wearing the mask, you know, as I have taken pictures of all these photographers over the years. But yeah, that was the, that was that interview. Yeah. But the worst part. Yeah, I'm giving it back. And it's my only copy. I don't, I don't have a copy of it or anything. Look, this is a great conversation coming up with David Fahey. But honestly, for me, getting to hear this story confirmed in person all these years later, it was worth the whole damn trip. Then aside, David's portraits and interviews of some of the most notable photographers of our times is an amazing body of work, not to mention an important contribution to art history. But that is far from David's only significant contribution. As an art dealer, David Fahey was one of the very few who knew that the works of the 20th century contemporary photographers would prove in time to be as important to art history and as valuable to art collectors as any other fine artworks by any artist. Now in its fourth decade, his gallery has arrived at a time where the vision of the future has been realized, due in no small way to his ongoing curating and showcasing of iconic photographers. David himself did not come to this as an art dealer, or even as a fan, but rather as a photographer. As we started to talk in his office and the gallery, he shared some of his early beginnings with me including a story about buying a camera while on leave when he was in the army in Vietnam. He bought this camera to document his own personal experiences fighting in that war. One of those photos even made its way on to the pages of the New York Times as a feature image. But prior to that, in the 60s, I was a, I liked to play music, and so I went to all of the clubs uh, jazz and rock clubs, and I uh, photographed at these clubs for the sole purpose of hearing the music for free. That's kind of how I got involved in photography. And then when I came back from Vietnam, I went back to college and I decided to get a degree in communications with an emphasis in uh, photography, like photojournalism. And then when I finished uh, my undergraduate degree, I went back to school to get a graduate degree in uh, creative photography, it was called at the time, through the art program. The normal place to go would be to become a photographer. Uh, at what point do you wind up finding your way, though, into the, uh, the selling side of our business? Well, it was a, a bit of an um, epiphany. Um, I realized at a point in time that I could be a photographer and a struggling artist, like many of my friends, or I could get into this area of showing and exhibiting their work. And back in those days, um, one major way photographers interacted was through an organization called uh, Society for Photographic Educators. It's during this time, 
when I was in grad school, I was also teaching photography at Compton College. So they would have uh, annual meetings. The uh, teachers would gather there, you know, because many of the photographers that were well known were teachers. And that's how I kind of got to know them all. Mm. And so when I got out and the gallery world was just starting, uh, I was able to contact these people. I knew who they were, where they were, how to, you know, they knew me. And I said, let's do an exhibition of your work. And so we began doing that very thing. I mean, you say the gallery world is just starting. You're really referring to the photography side yes. of the gallery world. But you had done some work with uh, G. Ray Hawkins, I believe it was. Yes, and, I, and at the time, I was the director of contemporary photography at G. Ray Hawkins. And I worked there for 10 years, all of, you know, working on all the exhibitions. And, and you know, my main area was sort of artist relations. And so that was my main thing. And of course, those are the days where we were doing things that were, had never been done before in photography. Uh, we set records on prices, you know, for the first time, and uh, we sold a Curtis set, uh, Edward Curtis set of, of uh, gravures. I remember the first time we had a, we sold an Ansel Adams for a thousand dollars. People just were, went crazy; they couldn't believe it was possible. And uh, so those were the heady years, so to speak. Why do you think that was happening then? I mean, what was it about that time period that made it right? Well, I think. Film, you know, in the 60s and 70s, a big part of our world and French New Wave and just American uh, cinema was developing in a very serious way, you know. And photography was always there, but it, be it became a collectible um, genre. I mean, people responded to it. Uh, you know, people like Dennis Hopper, Allen Ginsberg were taking pictures, Helmut Newton, of course, and Avedon and Penn. And these were, you know, top high-end professionals that were making beautiful images and making them in small editions, if if even editioned at all. So, you know, there were not that many out there. And so back in those days, you, for very little, you could build a very important photography collection. Many people did. You know, the latter half of the 20th century became something that was very new and fresh, and, and people responded to that. You know, it's interesting. We're, you right now have these pieces up in the office that we're sitting in. I'm looking at them, and some of them I have never seen before. But there is an inherent familiarity with those pieces. You know, I know them, and I, I know them before even seeing them because it's speaking in a language I think that I'm already familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that's what made it finally work by the mid-1970s, that you had a generation coming into their own, grew up in a time that television has come onto the scene, that movies are more mass and, and more artistic, uh, more available, um, that magazines have been around, and more importantly, that the camera has been in the hands of average people for a longer period of time, and that it feels perhaps maybe more something that belongs to them. Yeah, it was a part of their generation. You know, when Ansel Adams did his workshops up in Yosemite, it was the rich lawyers and dentists that, you know, were, and doctors that photography was their best their hobby. And they had, the, they had the money to buy great equipment and they would go up on these workshops as a vacation mm -hmm. and ended up buying his pictures in the evenings. If you, hey, if you like my picture and you want to buy it, it's available for nothing, of course, at the time. But that kind of started an aspect of photography collecting. And then you had um, you know, Beaumont Newhall and Edward Steichen and the Family of Man and all of the, and John Sierkowski, where the museums started to become interested in building photography collections. You know, when a major museum recognizes photography as a, uh, a work of art, 
you know, you have to, it's something to be reckoned with. You have to, you have to open your mind up to that possibility. Uh, even here my, with my own exhibition, I created an exhibition called Masters of Starlight with Linda Rich. And we had it at the, uh, we held the exhibition at the County Museum in, I think it was 86. And it was the first time a major museum in the West Coast really recognized the power and the creativity inherent in Hollywood photographs. So the general idea of recognizing uh, wonderful, new, original, innovative photography was it was in the atmosphere. I mean, everybody was very open to it. Is it a parallel market or was it becoming already part of the more formal gallery market? I mean, was it just a new medium that was coming on or was it a new business that was coming on? I think it's a new business. Um, and how would you distinguish it? Because there was a certain amount of resistance because, you know, people felt when they were buying a painting, they were buying a unique object. But as you know, a lot of paintings aren't necessarily unique. You know, Van Gogh did the sunflowers painting, I think, six times, you know, so there's different versions around, even in painting and sculpture. Mm -hmm. But I think because it was a multiple and certain photographers did not addition, some did, I think that was in many ways a little bit of a deterrent for people, you know, they didn't quite connect early on, but it took 20 years of educating the uh, public to really how rare these things are and how important they are to really settle in. It took a while to do that. I was there in those early days. You couldn't give those pictures away for nothing. And uh, of course, uh, Herb and Peter have set records in you know pricing. Uh, we did a Man Ray show and in 1986, uh, sold a picture for $9,000, and the same image uh, just sold in Paris for $3.1 million. Jesus. And so, you know, when people start seeing that kind of turnover, that's another uh, incentive to kind of wake up and recognize the, the, the uh, monetary value that's there, you know. Uh, people don't, you know, really have that as a, a factor in collecting. They collect to collect, but then when they see evidence of the prices increasing dramatically, that becomes a factor in making decisions about what they buy and when they buy. Being in the business, I've, I've always had this term that I've used, which is uh, crass, but gets the point across, and, and I call it the schmuck factor. And, and what and, is that? And, and that is that people are attracted to whatever they're attracted to. You know, beautiful things, and whether they are by someone who is important or whether it's not by someone who's important, whether there's great craft in it or there's not great craft, they're just attracted to it and they want to possess it. However, there's always the same basic stumbling block somewhere along the lines, which is if I buy this for whatever the price is and I get it home and I hang it on my wall and I'm happy with it and my neighbor comes over and I say, take a look at this new picture I just bought and they say, well, what did you pay for it? And he goes, I spent a thousand dollars. When he says, what do you mean that's $1,000? What is the thing that I get to say that defines why it's $1,000? Yeah. And you need to make an argument for this. Now you really have to talk about you know, what it is inside that image that makes it important. Well, that's many questions in that one question that you just said. First of all, I always tell people, you know, don't buy what you think is going to go up in, as an investment. That's a factor, and but put it aside for a moment and really look at what you're looking at and say, am I passionate about that picture? Do I feel good when I look at that picture? Do I learn something about the world that's different than what I knew when I see that picture? Is it something that gives me pleasure visually? 
you know, you're not obligated to have to justify it with a neighbor or a friend, but you can say, I simply like it. And if it goes up in price, that's just great. That's great because I get to enjoy it for 10, 15, 20 years. And so that's my motivating factor uh, there. Now, some people want to know that, well, when I spend a lot of money, is it going to appreciate in value? There's no guarantee. If there was a guarantee, I'd buy everything I looked at. And if you look around and see that certain photographs are increasing in value and you ask me my advice, I'll give you my advice. And then, you know, if you're very, if you're really secure, you, you just approach it and respond in that manner. Uh, if you're insecure about what you did, I spent a thousand dollars, wow, then maybe you shouldn't be collecting. <laughs> but the thing is, is that you can look at all of the figures in the history of art that when they first purchased whatever the first object was they acquired, they, many of them, most of them, were chastised in some way for buying something that was worthless or meaningless to most people, but subsequently became something very significant in the evolution of uh, our cultural history. And so that's how you have to look at it. I'm just floating along, responding to what I like. Now, if you have a good, smart dealer that's very informative, they'll tell you, you know, here's something you should look at because it's in the direction of where you're going with your collection. But if it's 1975 and you're trying to convince somebody to spend $1,000, you have to get, you have to find that one person that's very confident, very secure, and loves what they're looking at. When I uh, did my first Irving Penn show, I had was hanging the work one night, and I got a call after hours. This guy said, hey, I'm in my car. I'm, a, I'm just a block away. Can I come in and see the show, preview the show, because it hadn't opened. And I, I wanted to go home, but I said, sure, why don't you come on in? I, I wouldn't refuse him. So the guy came in and he walked around. He picked out four Irving Penn pictures right away. And I was, you know, querying him as we were, I was writing up the invoice. And what made you make this choice? And how come you selected so quickly? He said, listen, when I grew up, I knew of these pictures. I was young. I didn't have any money. Now I'm a successful business person. I have the money and the wherewithal to buy them. And once again, that delay was there where now he can afford it. Now he wants to buy. That's great because so many times I get the opposite version of that, which is the guy who can't get over the fact that at one time it was this price and now it's this price. And, and Well, that's the person that usually doesn't buy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I run into that quite a bit. Also, you know, there are people out there that collect that are compulsive people. They, they're spontaneous people and, and they just react on instinct. Uh, yeah, I can use as, some of those. <laughs> it's just as valid as anybody. You're in an interesting situation here too. Here we are on La Brea. Very few people are going to come here by chance. I'm not on a shopping street. I'm not in Farmer's Market. I'm not on Third Street Promenade. I'm not on Rodeo Drive. So whoever comes in your door probably made a decision at some point or another that they at least want to see photographs. Yes. Are most people coming here to see an exhibition or are they coming here at the collecting on the brain? Well, no, with all art galleries, including painting, sculpture, and photography, 95% um, of, the, of the viewers that come to the galleries are, are non-buyers mm -hmm. in, the, in the immediate uh, time. Uh, they may become buyers later, but they're primarily non-buyers. They're viewers, they're passionate enthusiasts, 
educators and, and they just want to come for the pure enjoyment of seeing the original prints in front of them. The other 5% are, are regular buyers. And so they're aware of what we do by the internet, by our advertising, and because we, over a period of time, uh, build a mailing list up and we inform them what we're doing. And so they come specifically to see that show. Now, our gallery stable is very diverse. So I could have a fashion show one month and a civil rights show the next month. So I like the idea of people coming in to see civil rights and walking in the back room and seeing a fashion picture that they love and end up buying that or vice versa. But I would say it's about a 95 5% breakdown for us. Now, many galleries, painting galleries, I'd say it's, you know, it's 98% and 2% that buy. So that's kind of how it breaks down. And a lot of artists or photographers or what have you come in to see what they're, you know, who inspired them or what their, their colleagues are doing, their, their equals, you know. I, I just came from a gallery in Beverly Hills, um, one right on Rodeo. Uh, I would say a large percentage of the people who wander into their gallery are wandering into it because they're just on a conveyor belt. That is, it yeah. could be a jewelry show shop, it or could tourists, be a dress or, shop, it could yeah. be anything. They're just, you know, there's flashy things in it and they just happen in. But you at least have people, you know, there's hardly anybody that comes in here that isn't at least interested in what's on the walls, whether or not they're going to define themselves as a collector. So are you creating your own market? I mean, what percentage of the people who you count on as your bread and butter are people who you picked out of that group that just came to take a look at a show and developed them and cultivated them? Well, I would say with photography, <clears throat> in the beginning of my career in photography, we've always, it's always been about creating that, that collector, mm -hmm. being, being, uh, finding the connoisseurs and, and, you know, contributing to their interests. And then once you, once you, that's been accomplished, then you, you keep, uh, that process in play, you know, and you build on it and you, their friends that are interested in photography and new people that I discover interested in photography, the artist brings in new people that are interested in their photography and see things that they didn't know existed. And so the collector base broadens and, and grows over a period of time. It's like anything, you know, uh, it, you just become well known. And, and so people will seek you out to see what's going on. And the other thing too, is that I'm not interested in Hollywood pictures or music pictures or sports pictures or what or photojournalism. I'm interested in the best of those genres. So, in other words, I don't want to be known as a music gallery. Uh, those most people just collect the subjects. Mm -hmm. I want them to collect the photographers and recognize that the handful of music photographers that really were innovative and really were presenting something really different or truthful or genuine, authentic. Uh, those are the people I want to work with and, and represent and subsequently show and and place in collections. Because I think the collectors over time, uh, what they collect or what you recognize is important. Well, do you ever find that difficult? I know if I was in your position, you'd eventually be faced with this conundrum, which is I can take a photographer who I appreciate a lot. It's a very good photographer, uh, and music is their subject matter. But I know the picture they took of Keith Richards is always going to sell 10 times as much, if not 100 times as much, as the picture he took of some kid getting his first crack on stage at some, you know, honky-tonk in the South that he once shot. No, not really. I mean, if my collectors have to trust me and what I put in front of them as something that's valid, 
authentic and real. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they like it is up to them. I won't take a picture that someone made of Keith Richard because I don't sell the Keith Richard picture. I sell Jim Marshall's picture of Keith Richard mm-hmm. or uh, Ethan Russell's picture of Jim uh, of, of uh, Keith Richard. So it's really looking for the people that made the most iconic and meaningful portraits. And so I sort of stick with that. Um, but that's its own tricky business, too. Not that it isn't really the definition or part of the definition of our job. But, yeah. you know, Jim Marshall is always going to be caught underneath the shadow of his own subject matter to some degree. It takes a great deal of art dealer muscle to be able to make sure that that collector knows they're buying a Jim Marshall, not buying a vehicle to the rock star that they love. But you'd be surprised at how well-informed and educated people are nowadays about photography in the past mm-hmm. less so but so nowadays you, know, you can throw out a bunch of those pictures you can lay them across the counter tabletop and you can pick out the jim marshall or the annie Leibovitz or the ethan russell or the uh baron woman whatever it might be mark seliger it, it, you can spot the uh stylistic uh differences between these different individuals and this is what i try to even with jim marshall the the first book we did, I edited called Not Fade Away, and we deliberately put a little teeny picture of Jimi Hendrix on the cover, but it was only about two inches by three inches. And the idea was, we're selling Jim Marshall here, not Jimi Hendrix. Right. And it was that was a whole concept. And when you look at his pictures, they're distinctively different than Andy Leibovitz, certainly. Mark Seliger is a very different Danny Clinch is a different picture than Jim Marshall, even though Danny was very influenced by Jim. They're all different. So I, my job is to find those different people, just a handful. I don't want 30. I want six or whatever, five or six. Mm-hmm. And those are the, those, that's the work I want to represent and sell. And I can't be greedy and try to corner the market and just you know have everybody. I mean, even though I have a lot of artists right now. Is time making a difference in this? And it occurs to me as we're talking. Time? Well, yeah, that... If we go back to, again, the mid-70s when this is beginning for you and it's beginning for a lot of the business in general, you take an example like some of the names you dropped, like Irving Penn. Irving Penn was an active photographer of that time period, of the 1960s as well, and that at that time, it's just contemporary work. They were yet to become the iconic images that they are now are. And he wasn't yet the institution that he now is, just by surviving over that time period. To buy an Irving Penn today is in direct respect to the fact that over those past 50 years, he has remained at the top of the heap. So that becomes somehow a little bit more important than it would have back then, than the photograph itself. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I just was meeting with a collector today who has a major art collection, and he said one of his photographs is uh, Frozen Foods. He, as an important art collector, recognized that. Mm-hmm. And he was probably way ahead of the because he bought it many years ago. So he was just ahead of the curve as a, as a visual individual, somebody who's a collectible, uh, interested in the art world and visual imagery that's you know, significant. He recognized that because he was informed and, and because he was aware of that contribution that Penn made and how he was distinctively different than his, his peers. How have things changed over the years, both the business and the collectors themselves? You know, it's occurred to me that there's something very generational. There's more people interested in collecting. Uh, there's more galleries. There's, um, it seems like every other institution in America 
has a department of photography. That didn't exist like it exists today. It's very full. They do regular photography-related exhibitions because, quite frankly, they recognize finally over a long period of time that when you put on an important, you know, distinctive photography exhibition, it draws huge crowds. Really, mm -hmm. crowds that, some, in many cases, uh, are larger than some of the, the shows they've been trying to do, like a impressionist show or what have you. Uh, they, they've recognized that photography really draws an audience, and of course, that's meaningful for these museums. Why do you think it grow, draws more of an audience? Well, because the the people you know grew up in this generation with Life magazine and TV and film, and you know, and they're, they're much more cultured than they were in 1948. You know, mm -hmm. and so. When you put on a photography show at the Met, you get a huge audience because that's the audience now. Think about all the impressionist shows you went to see when you were a kid. Well, at a point in time, you want to see something different. Hey, this is something I connect with, I can relate to. I grew up with uh, somebody's filtered this to show me, they're showing me just the best of the best. And, and now I really get a sense of the development of the, and the evolution of this history. <laughs> and uh, I relate to it and I connect with it. And so that's the audience. Do you think that continues to just get better? I mean, one thing that's occurring to me as I'm looking at the photographs behind you of these civil rights leaders in the moment, you know, is one of them speaking in front of a congregation to your right. And, you know, at that time, probably the person who took that picture was the only person with a camera in the room. If that moment happened today, Every single person in that room has a pretty good camera in their pocket that they can take that picture with. That there would be 20 iterations from the, just the people in that room of that photograph that would be up on Instagram within moments of that moment having taken place. Does that increase our acceptance to it? Do we become more connoisseurs because we now have so much of it, we define the one who is truly the artist in the mass, or does it become you know, more trivial? Well, anybody can go out and buy a paintbrush, a stretched canvas and try to paint. Anybody can take a camera phone and make a picture. But the ones that consistently make unique pictures on a regular basis uh, throughout a 40-year, 50-year career, those are the ones that get the, 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 the uh, real recognition and attention. You can make that picture, and that's, that's, that's changing how we look at photographs. But can you be at the right place at the right time all the time? No. Someone like James Noctway, who who's a photojournalist, you know, when he was working real actively, was someone who consistently made great pictures. And you just you would look at him and go, how's that possible? That is the difference between those two people. And I think it remains to be seen how the photo, the uh, camera phone is really going to, is how it's going to affect our culture. I, I agree with you at the distinction, but I'm curious about the masses. You know, whereas there was that time you're coming in and the public was becoming very sensitive to photography. They were becoming very aware of it and they were speaking that language. But most people really, they couldn't readily make a good photograph. That was something that was more to the domain of professionals. That said, the generation that's coming up, they're just exposed to so much of it, including their own work. Do you think their relationship is going to be the same as the generation following or pre previous to them and be able to give that value? Everything is cyclical. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I've always believed that. 
when we first began showing and, and selling photographs, it was all about the small print, the precious object. Mm -hmm. Of course, now it's about the big print and how it takes the place of a painting. You know, it's, it's a narrative all contained in that one big object. So it's like a curated show in that object. Like that's Martin Luther King's room the day he was shot. Mm. It's, a, it's, his, it's his briefcase, his personal effects. They're, they're announcing this assassination on TV. There's a whole narrative in that one photograph. It can, it can be like a painting. You know, because of the, of the ubiquity of, of the camera phone, one, I think it's actually going to draw more interest to photography because people, now everybody thinks they're a photographer and, and, and they're now interested in the medium. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to go see Carter Russell and see how he did compare it with what I did. And I, you know, I did this portrait of a great portrait of so and so. Let's see how the Hollywood uh, portrait photographers worked, and maybe mine's better or whatever. Uh, but that cycle is going to, you know, it's going to dip and it's going to change. And I mean, you know, I'm sure the you know figurative paintings are going to come back at a big with a big roar at some point. But I think whatever's happening in photography and all that is happening. As big as it is, hasn't happened yet. I think it is the art of the, of the 21st century, and I think we, we're a long way from seeing the end of that use and that appreciation and that dominance in the culture. Hey, sorry to jump in here, but I just wanted to point out that you're still listening to this not-so-short show, which means you like it. Or maybe you just fell asleep. If it's the like it reason, I want to ask you a favor. You happen to be my only marketing plan. Now stop thinking I'm screwed. Actually, the task that you have is pretty simple. I just need you to tell the folks that you think might be interested in this just like you are that the show exists in the first place and maybe recommend that they take a listen to it too. They can do that on just about any podcast app and if they don't have one of those, they can go on over to theartdealer.show, our website where all the episodes are kept, and that gives them more information about how to find it in other places. Now, let's get back to my interview with Ruth Ann Thorne, or maybe in your case, sleep. And if you are asleep, The Art Dealer Show is the best podcast ever. You love The Art Dealer Show, and you're going to tell all your friends about it. Two pictures in the other room, there's two pictures in the other room that contributing to stopping the Vietnam War. Uh, Eddie Adams, Saigon Execution, and Nick Oot, uh, the girl running from the napalm. You know, that's on the covers of the newspapers all across America. And when people saw those pictures, they said, hey, we should get out of there. We have no business being there. You know, that's the power of visual. But is that the power of the art or is that the power of the document? It's the same thing. Well, the art could be a fiction. Well, no, we, we, in this particular instance, photojournalism, it's all unretouched mm -hmm. truth as, as you best can portray it in a photograph, as long as you're not subjectively changing things or Photoshopping things and whatnot. And if it's just a real picture and you, and you put it in the proper context with a, a caption, it just is what it is. Andy Warhol, made his shoe drawings for commercial purposes. Nick Oot took that picture and it was used and syndicated all over the world in newspapers. As a commercial object, 
he was a, a commercial photographer hired to record and document Vietnam War. So they both were collecting money, and that's what their jobs were. But over a period of time, the powers that be, the intelligentsia, the educators, curators said, okay, that's not only a record of that time and place, but now we're going to call it a supreme work of art. That's a judgment that I don't make. I mean, that's a lot of people making it. It's our culture making that decision. This, this image sets itself apart from everything else. Because a lot of people photograph in Vietnam. That picture made a difference. So do we call it a work of art? Do we call it this guy? And that... Well, it's evocative regardless of the path. Yeah. I mean, it's achieving the thing that we hope to achieve with, with any significant piece of artwork. Does it make you experience something? Does it move well, you emotionally? Well, it's the old adage, jar that carries water from the well in 2000 BC. Is that a work of art? It's a utilitarian object. Now it's, in the, it's at the Getty Museum in the Antiquities Department as a work of art. What would, you, what would you say is the key challenge you've had as an art dealer that the art dealer who sells paintings doesn't have, that's unique to being a dealer who represents photography? I would say explaining to people that um, just because it's capable of being made in the multiple doesn't mean it's always made in the multiple. Meaning that picture there of uh, Eve Klein jumping off the wall, Eve Klein, the painter, it's called Leap into the Void. It's like mm -hmm. one of the first happening pictures. But you know when they did happenings in the 60s? Mm -hmm. I would say there's less than 10 pictures of those around. I only know, let's see, four. You know, people think, oh, it's in multiple. Well, yeah, but it, there's only four of them. In some cases, there's only one. And then you have the antithesis of that. If Ansel Adams, who made 850 prints of Moonrise over Hernandez, and yet that sells at auction for a lot of money. So... Really, I'd say that the challenge has been explained to people inherently, the great photography is inherently rare because really terrific, you know, innovative photographers, the last thing they want to do is go in the dark room and make another print, even though they just sold that for 1500 or whatever. They want to take the picture that hasn't been taken yet. And do you think it's at the back of most, at least early collectors' minds? Well, I think most people were astute and, and recognized that these are hard to find convincing the general public of that took a longer time. And now we're at a time and place where it's, yeah, it's pretty easy to explain. It seems like the problem should almost be in the opposite. I mean, at first glance, the issue is the medium itself is set up where there is nothing that is, in quotes, the original, except for potentially the negative itself. And so people go directly to that place of you can theoretically make as many as possible. Uh, for a painter who has a limited edition, there is an original and then there is a print. But unlike that, where the print is technically a copy of something in the world that we call the original article, in this particular case of photography, whatever it is, an edition of the 380 or so for uh, of Moonrise or an edition of five, that they all technically are originals because it is the medium that the artist is working in. It's not a copy of their medium. And before Photoshop, it's an interpret. It's a differently interpreted original mm -hmm. and because the the photographers and uh, that printed silver gelatin photographs. Each photograph was an interpretation, a little different. Every dodge and every burn yeah. is a little different than yeah. the other one. And with digital photography now, you can have a file where it duplicates. Does that cause more of a challenge, though? No. Yeah. Uh, an image is an image. Mm -hmm. Then you just need to police the quantity and 
define the how many are made, mm -hmm. make that clear publicly. The medium is, for image making has changed consistently over since the beginning of time. It's always been the case, you know. So even when they're making gum prints or blueprints or lithographs, I mean, it's, everything's changed. It's really the image that's important and what it communicates. And, and you know, it's it's relevant, but less relevant than people think. You're really responding to the image. You should respond to that first and that alone, and then make sure it's not a fugitive image and something's going to last. There's always that collector that wants to find craft in the product. And, you and we can find pictures to address that. And then we steer them away from the ones that you're not going to respond to. If, but you can't let that be any kind of um, criteria because it's a personal criteria for that person. Yeah, that's what makes individual collectors because they this is my one direction. Mm -hmm. I only this is the only thing I do. If you if you digress from that, I, I'm not interested. I just want this, or I collect only fashion, only for journalism, only. Do you do you take them as they come, or do you ever try to push up against that? No, uh, I take them as they come, and I just try to inform them and educate them as much as I can to, mm -hmm. to, to be aware of what options are available. You know that's important for dealers to do. I think. I mean, I encourage people to pursue their esoteric directions because that's what makes the whole process grow. You know, you've mentioned collectors a lot uh, as people who have themes to what they do. I'm wondering if that's something that's unique to photography that I think for most dealers who work in, you know, with painters or any other medium, you have a fair amount of people who collect who are really just furnishing a home. You know, that, and, and, and they feel them, you know, they're not doing what the average person does either. They're not going to Z Gallery. They're buying things that are significant or things yeah, that they care about. And that's legitimate. And they're invested yeah. in it. However, I'm wondering, because of the way you've organized your business, it seems to be that you are, you may have more people or more, a higher percentage of the sales you make might be to people who are more defined as ongoing collectors than maybe the average gallery gets. And the sheer fact that because it's not as expensive as painting, mm -hmm. we have more photography collectors than, than such and such gallery across town has painting collectors, it would be my guess. Because once again, we sell multiples and, and it's, it's kind of new and happening and fresh and there's a whole big, and it's accessible. And when you have a photograph and you have it hanging in your home and you have it at one end of the room and you have a painting hanging in your home at the other end of the room and you have a dinner party and people come over, nine out of 10 will walk up to the photograph and comment and 1% goes up to the, photograph, to the painting and comments for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, they don't, they don't want to be, they're intimidated by the painting, they don't understand it, they don't recognize it. The photograph is relatable. They can connect with it even if they don't know who it is. It occurs to me that in the room we're sitting in, they're all black and white. And people seem to gravitate towards that. There seems to be this sense that black and white is the more serious photograph, that we, there's a presumption that that has a, more, a higher likelihood that that is the work of art versus just a document. Uh, not that you don't have photo, color photographs in your gallery. I saw some really beautiful ones, but there is there is something to that, isn't there? Uh, if you want to believe that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I would tell you, just as a, a general thing to counter that argument, just uh, for the sake of discussion, a black and white photograph was made 
and available to people for many, many more years before color be became possible to make. You have that Nearly factor. Yeah, you just have it. You have a uh, just it's a numerical thing. Way more black and white. Black and white is is uh, associated with being a little grittier, a little bit on the fly, a little bit more spontaneous, and it really speaks to what photography does best, which is capturing that little quick moment. Mm -hmm. And that was possible with fast black and white films earlier than fast color films, which came later. Uh -huh. Now we're in a world where it's all pretty much equal. And so now you see color coming into its own. Do collectors, particularly those who really are investing their money into it, do they have a bias? Do they gravitate to one over the other? Or do you not sure. see that bias at all? Sure. All collectors are looking to distinguish what they collect. Okay, so... I only collect Eggleston color in dye transfer mm -hmm. in works from the South. Great example. That's what I collect. And so that, that further defines who they are as individuals, you see. Yes, that's, that's what makes your collection distinctive. But yeah, I mean, everybody's looking to distinguish themselves. You know, the photographers, the collectors, the museums, the dealers, you know, we all want to be individual. I'm curious when uh, I'm switching the subject a little bit on you. When you hire people to work in your gallery and somebody comes to you who has worked outside of photography in a more classic art gallery, is there ever any hesitance? Is there ever no. any trans you mean to hire them? Yeah, is there no. any translation problems at all? No, no, no. I mean, they have to, I mean, they have to, it's a business first mm -hmm. uh, and foremost, and they have to be compassionate and open to, you know, what they're in front of every day. But it really, you're looking for a successful and, and um, capable business person. Uh, the photography part, they're gonna learn from me and other people on a daily basis as we go along. And they'll repeat my stories or repeat my, the essence of what I'm telling people because if they believe it. And, and, and it just gets passed down to the next generation. But I think with employees starting off with someone very capable in the business field is, is first and foremost. Yeah, because all the other stuff is learnable, like anything is. It's just that you need them to know how to be fast on the computer and to know art systems and different programs. Because if, if they don't know that, you're, you're and they're great and everything else, uh, then you're dead in the water. <laughs> Nobody's taking care of business. Well, a lot of gallery owners will define finding good people is the hardest thing about running their business. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest thing. And second hardest thing is who to invite to the, the artist dinner at the opening, after the opening. <laughs> <laughs> Very difficult. Well, for first you have to make the, you know, the prediction of who's actually going to buy something at the show itself. Well, you don't get invited if you're a buyer. You get invited if you're interesting and maybe the artist wants to meet you. Uh -huh. And uh, you can be a press person or a curator or a whoever oh, you don't treat we it don't, as just a reward a, system no no we don't yeah. treat it as a hey buy something i take you to dinner no yeah is it a, so is it about entertaining the artist it's about yeah it's about entertaining them after their party it's their dinner their party their opening let's have people that would interest the table sometime. you know i probably see it differently as an artist agent because to yeah. me i'm still seeing it as we're all on the clock well that's a good way to look at it i mean that's nothing wrong with that because we are all on the clock Sometimes you just you make concessions in order to not appear as if uh, money is your sole purpose, you know, for us anyway. 
can't make it that money is the sole purpose I do this because I don't. I don't. I, I don't mean to sound sanctimonious or anything, but just saying I, I do it for a lot of other reasons. So you have to make money. Mm -hmm. You have to pay your bills. And you have to pay your employees and your insurance and all that. But, but it's it's uh, the power of the experience and and uh, the opportunity to be affected by these wonderful personalities. These artists, they're all uniquely different with something different to say. And when you're exposed to that, it's like being in school with the best teachers or year in, year out, all year round. Uh, it's inspirational and it's educational and it's all of these things, you know. And so big part of it without sounding too schmaltzy, it's just, it's just sort of, that's what it is. I really believe that's what it is. Maybe that's why we're, we aren't more successful, but <laughs> that's kind of what it is. Would he have done anything different? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Well, anything I missed out? My favorite color is green. <laughs> Hey, I want to thank David Fahey for being such a great interview and being so generous with his time and his fantastic stories. I want to point out something that I kept on hearing David say many times during the course of our conversation. Kept on talking about the nature of collectors. He said things like, and I'm quoting here, that's what makes a collector a collector. All collectors are looking to distinguish what they collect. Everyone is looking to distinguish themselves. We all want to be individual. He brings up a very good point, or should I say points. He talks about really what distinguishes the difference between a collector and just somebody who's buying a piece of artwork. Those words stuck in my head for days after we met, and there's a hell of a lot to unpack there and dive into, but I'm going to leave that for a whole nother night that we meet here again at the old art dealer bar. But uh, from what I can see, it looks like studs are starting to put the bar stools back on the bar. And he's giving me that time to go home look. So I'm going to use that as our cue that we need to start wrapping things up here. So until next time, we meet again here at our corner booth at the old art dealer bar. May the coconuts fall at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us at artdealer.show. You can also find us at all the cool social media hangouts under the handle of, yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show.